day here as you're on your way to hang out with us, KZUM. On K9360, we talk about dogs every week and uh, always something, something oh, be new again. Um, I will in coming bring you uh, a story as details are still getting worked out. Um, that I think is going to establish a legal precedent that as dog owners, we all want to be aware of. You might remember perhaps 10 years ago now when LA attorneys, San Francisco attorneys, I guess, Bob and Marjorie Nuller permitted their untrained and dangerous dogs to kill their neighbor in the hallway of their apartment complex in San Francisco. The deceased was a lacrosse coach named Diane Whipple. She was doing nothing more than coming home from her job at Sonoma State. And the Nollers, who were attorneys and should have known better, allowed their dogs, uh, Hane and Bane and Hera, to lunge and attack Diane Whipple, knock her down, and she died uh, as a result of her injuries. Big dogs. Um, The Nullers are doing state time in California for manslaughter with the dog as a deadly weapon. You can Google this and read all about it yourself. That one lawsuit changed the legal landscape for all of us with respect to dog bites. Uh, The newest story new legal precedent coming out of Los Angeles this time. A shelter worker uh, interacting, caring for a dog in the shelter, German Shepherd dog with a known bite history. The shelter was determined that this dog would go out into a new home rather than go down as he probably should have. And the dog attacked the shelter worker. She was not inexperienced. The dog grabbed her shoulder. She could not get help. She got out of the kennel run with the dog still attached to her arm and managed to get herself someplace in the shelter uh, where she could get some help. She sued and she won $6.8 million. And uh, this is going to be some legal precedent for shelters and rescues everywhere who might be thinking naughty thoughts. Naughty's probably not the right word about uh, what to do with that dog with the documented bite history. So more to come on that. Um, What I wanted to share with you actually this evening has more to do with uh, maybe an underlying dynamic to both of those stories, as I just mentioned, And it's something we've talked about here on the program in the past. It has to do with dogs and proxemics. Proxemics is the study of how we use physical space. And I talk a lot about it in my dog training classes, particularly with respect to teaching puppies to respect our space. Jumping up is a proxemics problem, if you will. And... Also in any canine good citizen class where handlers or owners may have aspirations for turning their dog into a therapy dog or a dog who can visit a library, um, senior center, a hospital, 
other institutional settings where they're going to come in contact with people and the expectation is that they are available for petting. You know, there's no canine-related event, no sport or competition that requires a dog to enter the intimate zones of unfamiliar humans and remain there for several minutes of touching and petting. Even some of the sports that I do, and I think about uh, brief interactions with judges in a confirmation ring or an obedience ring, do not compare to the prolonged and repeated contact that takes place during these animal-enhanced visiting programs. Even think of uh, like a search and rescue dog. They, they very often work in chaotic environments, but not with prolonged physical contact and unfamiliar people, right? Service dogs, hearing eye, seeing eye dog, hearing ear dog, they work beautifully in public settings, but the public is actively discouraged from touching, petting, or distracting them. If we back up even farther than that, right, we really get back to laying some groundwork for thinking about this. We're going to remember that dogs have been bred, specifically bred for generations to distinguish between outsiders and family and to act accordingly. There has never been a breed of dog designed, specifically bred for enjoying unwanted interaction with strangers. This is the thesis of John Katz's book, The New Work of Dogs, if you're inclined to go deep on that. The dogs that actually enjoy interactions in clinical or educational or institutional settings are pretty rare and the uniqueness of their talent should probably be appreciated. Um, just because your goal is to have your dog work as a therapy dog um, doesn't mean you can make it come true. In fact, ethologist Raymond Coppinger once wrote about dogs' uniqueness of purpose. His book is called Dogs, A Startling New Understanding of Canine Origin, Behavior, and Evolution, published in 2001, if you're inclined to go read for yourself. Coppinger refer refers to a kind of unique intelligence which controls the performance of dogs. It's different from breed to breed and actually in some ways determined by the shape of their brain. So one breed is not more or less intelligent than another, no matter what Stanley Korn tries to tell you in the pages of Psychology Today. And I, I'm yawning here, even though you can't see that on the radio. <laughs> Each breed has a different kind of intelligence. Um, if that has been selected for by the breeder. Coppinger's writing supports uh, the idea that a therapy dog's propensity for its work is a gift that is not found in every dog. In other words, just because dogs have a complex social structure and that social structure is what makes it possible for them to live with us in the first place does not translate into the fact, a fact, that says all dogs will be social with all other dogs and people all the time. There are dogs' talents that we can enhance through conditioning, training, but underlying that talent has to be a kind of genetic foundation. When nature has loaded the gun, as we say, nature, nurture, just needs to pull the trigger. So, as I started to suggest, 
Proxemics is the study of personal space and the degree of separation that we human individuals maintain in social situations. The term proxemics, right? You can hear in there proximal, approximate, a whole bunch of derivations. Proxemics was coined by a researcher named Edward Hall, and he did most of his work in the 1960s. It relates to the study of our use of space and how various differences in those uses can make us feel more relaxed or more anxious. In fact, there's an entire industry or cottage industry which exists to assist businesses in designing environments that use space effectively and strategically to make people feel comfortable in crowded social settings, right? You can imagine a kind of proxemics translated into ergonomics. Um, Makes me think of a room full of cubicles, but that might not be all there is to it. Okay, so for business, it's a matter of money. The more comfortable that customers are, the more comfortable that staff is, the more likely they are to feel good about their experiences or in the case of customers, spend money and come back. So within businesses, careful professional attention is given to how employees work or work spaces are organized. It's all about increasing productivity, managing employee turnover. Uh, Paco Hill's book, Why We Shop, has in no small underpinnings a really interesting overview of the use of proxemics and how to draw people into a store. Fascinating stuff. Okay, dogs are a different species. They're not humans, so their perceptions of socially acceptable behaviors are different from ours or different from the humans with whom they work. But a dog's comfort level relates closely to their personal space, and that's something we always have to consider. All right, Edward Hall said that within each personal territory, and you can think about your own here, there are zones. The zone at which an individual is first aware of another person is the public zone. And from there, moving closer, we have something called the social zone. Although it's permissible to be in somebody else's social zone, it's the nonverbal communication between the individuals that will make the situation either intimidating or acceptable. Moving still closer brings us into another person's personal zone. So we've gone from public to social to personal. And closer than the personal zone even is the intimate zone, which includes actual contact. (coughs) Excuse me. An individual is overwhelmingly aware of someone else within one's intimate zone. And I'll bet that you can count on maybe one hand, one and a half hands, the number of people that you welcome into your intimate zone and the number of people that you welcome into your intimate zone and allow to remain there. Different species maintain rigid rules of communication within that proximity and ignoring or being unaware of those rules can be perceived as disrespect or, I'm thinking Harvey Weinstein now, intimidation. One example you might be familiar with is thinking about um, riding an elevator. If the elevator doors open and it's already occupied when you want to get on the second floor and ride with others to the first floor, as the door opens, 
everybody sort of smiles or kind of makes eye contact. And then you enter the elevator. If you must stand directly next to or in front of either other people within their intimate zones, you avoid eye contact. And protocol is that you continue to smile or remain reasonably pleasant until you have turned quickly toward the elevator door facing the same direction that others are facing, not looking directly at them. How weird would that be, right? Sounds like something out of the office or a funny movie. But the facial expressions and the posturing are communication signals that relate or reflect the close proximity of people who are unfamiliar with each other. Now, in animal-enhanced intervention, dog therapy visits, people are remarkably obtuse and they walk right into a dog's intimate zone without any introduction. Dogs are often guided into the intimate zone to people who are sitting in wheelchairs or lying in beds, who are standing or sitting on floors. And whenever the barrier of an intimate zone is crossed, dogs respond by signaling just as we humans signal other humans. To the dog, these signals are obvious announcements. They're obvious and unmistakable. Respect or appeasement, sometimes fear or defensiveness or aggression. Yet even visiting dogs are routinely required to enter environments where their language is completely foreign. And it's up to the handler, their trainer, to interpret and respond to the dog's important communications. So after an initial human-to-human greeting, a handler usually walks their dog straight up to the person being visited or the person walks straight up to the dog's head. Imagine that someone walked into an elevator on which you'd been riding, walked straight up to you, made direct eye contact, stood toe-to-toe, and put his hand on your head. People are usually unaware that their human behaviors do not translate as intended. Dogs are not human. They they communicate differently and they interpret human behaviors in canine terms. A straight approach aimed at the head of the dog signals tension from the dog's perspective. Not averting eye contact for some dogs can signal aggression or disrespect to the dog. Yet most meetings between people and dogs begin just this way. And then we sometimes scratch our heads and wonder why things went so terribly wrong. What would be better? A better human-to-dog greeting would be to approach the dog in an arc from the shoulder, 45-degree angle, so that the person ends up at the dog's side instead of of directly front-to-front, which creates tension and conflict. Handlers can reposition their dogs if they are uh, aware of this stuff or suggest that people are able to reposition themselves so that dogs and people do not end up toe to toe. Even with repositioning and moving in an arc, dogs often signal appeasement or discomfort during those greetings. Just last night I was teaching. I watched a couple dogs lick their lips. One licked their person averted their eyes, even turned their head away, 
turn their body away. Lie down, roll over, or even try to leave. Touching is an intimate act of communication. Yet touching is an integral part of nearly every dog interaction with a human who comes out with their clawed hands and their groping fingers. Certainly it's an integral part of of, uh, any kind of animal enhanced or dog enhanced intervention. And no one would suggest that people stop petting visiting therapy dogs. However, it is crucial that handlers determine sometimes in with the assistance of a trainer read the dog determine whether the dog being petted are seeking out this contact or just obediently tolerating what they perceive as an uncomfortable invasion of their personal space here's another thing and this something I always have to tell parents people hug each other during greetings as signs of affection dogs do not Yet few people seem to know this. And Trish McConnell talks about this extensively in her book, uh, The Other End of the Leash. For a dog to extend front legs or chest over another dog's shoulders is an act of domination. From the dog's perspective, hugs place unfamiliar people in threatening or dominating positions. Yet people and kids are often encouraged to hug dogs or hug visiting dogs. Eek. It's, uh, no, right? Uh, Here's another vocabulary word if you'd like. Kinesics. Kinesics is the study of nonverbal communication or body language. And communication, folks who study this stuff would tell us there are two elements to communication, delivery and reception, right? You've had enough misunderstandings or disagreements in your life. I have too. We all have to know that what I say and how it's received may not always match or line up. Body language enables any species to send messages, note reception of the messages, break through defenses and avoid conflict. And body language is the only language that dogs have at their disposal. Your dog has not spoken to you in a complete sentence in your first language since I came to live in your house, right? Body language and understanding that is crucial. Sometimes as humans, we consider the messages being sent by dogs more carefully than we consider how dogs interpret us. But if you're going to be part of a visiting team, then effective teamwork requires mature, thoughtful handlers who can relate to their dog's perceptions of what humans seem to be communicating. Handlers who are effective team leaders can communicate with their dogs using body language, but they have very limited control over communication that dogs might inadvertently receive from other people in the environment. It is perceptive, mature, thoughtful, skilled handlers who learn to relay messages of confidence and security to their dogs in any given situation, which eliminates the need for the dog to take matters into their own hands. 
The process of communication is complicated and becomes even more so when different species, in our case, dogs and humans, have differing interpretations for signals included in the vocabulary of body language. Although each dog is unique, some of the more common dog-related signals concerning personal territory, proxemics, include things like turning their head, lowering their head, turning away, averting eye contact. Some dogs will squint or blink their eyes, licking their lips, licking other individuals, grooming, scratching, sniffing, yawning. Ooh, I can't say yawning without feeling like I want to yawn myself. Not going to yawn. Uh, dogs, some dogs move slowly or they move in an arc. They move straight in. They sit, they lie down, they roll over, they freeze, they shake off. Sometimes it's tail wagging or bowing, lifting paws or raising hackles. Often, often, often humans do not recognize these signals or they misinterpret them as disinterest or disobedience. Yet each signal is part of the ongoing messages dogs might be trying to convey about intimate zones and personal territory. I've watched lots of dogs in the breed ring. Next time you watch a dog show on TV, after the judge finishes their exam and before the dog goes out to move on the down and back, watch how many dogs shake their whole body, like, like a dog would shake after a bath. They're shaking off that exam, literally shaking off the feeling of that stranger's hands on their body, literally. Some dogs, the minute they get off the table or the minute that exam is over, nose to tail, shaking. Ugh. Right? They shake it off. So during visits that take place in dogs' intimate zones, dogs are likely to communicate respect or appeasement. Maybe they lick their lips, they lick the person. Again, they lie down, they roll over. Um... There's these signals, these calming signals are meant to convey, I know that we're in each other's intimate zones, but don't worry, I mean no harm. It's maybe the same as the elevator scenario with humans. Sometimes dogs signal respect or appeasement by engaging themselves in activities that have nothing to do with strangers in their space. That's kind of an interesting thing to observe too. These behaviors are called displacement signals, and they're things like sniffing the ground, uh, self-grooming, scratching, or chewing on something. Displacement signals are generally understood to convey, we're here in the same territory, but it's okay. I'm not acknowledging you. See, I'm doing something else. This is when doing something else seems to lessen the stress that dogs associate with their perceptions of inappropriate social contact. Compare that to a person who stares at her cell phone screen rather than acknowledge unfamiliar people in an elevator or handlers because handlers who do not understand the communication taking place might correct these displacement behaviors. Stop sniffing. Get up here. Pay attention. Over time, if corrected consistently, dogs stop communicating in this way. Their observable indicators disappear, but their discomfort remains. And that makes the dog's future behavior harder to predict. So be thinking about that, right? What can we learn about this proxemics thing and dog behavior? 
lots, lots and lots. And it's important to understand it from our dog's perspective. It's super important to look at it if we're training dogs. Um, I am fond of suggesting to dog owners that all dog training, all of it, all of it is about the strategic use of space. Their space, your space, and the space the two of you occupy. And that coming to understand that, that notion of proxemics and all of its literal and metaphorical dimensions is to truly have the keys to the kingdom, right? If the kingdom is productive, safe life with dogs. Proxemics is everything, everything. It sounds a little um, new agey to say that, doesn't it? Ooh, it's all about animating space. Um, But I think about uh, back when Caesar Milan was sort of at the apex of his popularity and uh, the author Malcolm Gladwell met and observed him and Gladwell is the only observer or critic of Milan who understood that it was all about proxemics and the animation of physical space. In fact, if you read Gladwell's What the Dog Saw, you'll see that the very first secondary source that Gladwell contacted was the artistic director at the Martha Graham School of Dance in New York. And that that artistic director, whose name I won't remember, sat down with Gladwell, looked at videotape of Milan and said, oh yeah, it's all about animating space, which is what dancers do. If you're interested in this subject, that story, I think you can find it on a New Yorker archive online, What the Dog Saw, is an interesting deep dive. All right, that's the end of part one. Proxemics. See you here next week. We'll talk about part two. In the meantime, stick around or come on out or hang on tight to KZUM wherever you find us. Because we're here with you all the time, all week long, all year round. Summer, glorious summer. Bring your dog. See you this week at Stransky, I hope. Thanks, y'all. And uh, don't go anywhere. There's always something fun going on on KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world.